Welcome to the GCSAA podcast, live from the 2020 Golf Industry Show in Orlando, Florida, presented in partnership with Bayer Environmental Science. Now, here's your host, Scott Hollister. Well, welcome everybody to the 2020 Golf Industry Show in Orlando, Florida, and the GCSAA podcast live from Orlando. I am your host, Scott Hollister, the editor-in-chief of Golf Course Management Magazine, and uh, happy to see so many friendly faces here in Orlando, and uh, we're uh, doing a little uh, experiment here, recording a live uh, version of the GCSA podcast while we're in Orlando, and uh, uh, honored to have uh, a guest that probably Needs no introduction in this industry, but I'm going to give him one anyway, whether he wants one or not. But uh, uh, our guest today is the lead designer, president, and founder of, of Hands Golf Design. Uh, they have designed all sorts of, of notable projects all around the world, whether that's new design, uh, uh, courses you know like the Cradle at Pinehurst, Pinehurst Number 4, uh, renovation work, including things like the uh, Blue Monster at Doral, Colonial Country Club, and a lot of restoration work, a couple of very well-known projects in uh, the Olympic golf course, which we will talk about, and also uh, winged foot, which we will get to as well. But happy to welcome to the GCSA podcast, Mr. Gil Hans. Gil, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. Well, certainly honored to have you here. How often uh, do you have an opportunity to come to the golf industry show? Obviously, we have a new uh, GCSAA has a new relationship uh, with the show, with the architects uh, organization. But how often do you get an opportunity to uh, to come to the show? Unfortunately, I don't come very often. Um, it's just we've been very fortunate to have a lot of work on the go, and and it's very hard to hide when you're wearing this jacket and walking right. around. So it's it's one of those things where I think it's been probably four or five years since I've been here. But every time I come, I'm amazed by how much new stuff there is and how interesting it is. Do you, do you do much at like the PGA Merchandise Show or anything like that? Um, no, uh, I just like to stay in my bulldozer and kind of keep a low profile <laughs> and not spend a lot of time wandering around. Well, that, that, that's a good segue. You uh, on, your, on your website, you, you talk about uh, your desire to keep the firm small, to keep your hands on 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 roll in in the work that you're doing. As 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 the business has developed, how uh, challenging has that been for you to, to you and and your partner uh, Jim Wagner? How how difficult has that been to maintain uh, that that really hands-on approach that you founded the firm on? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I can remember the very first time I met Ben Crenshaw, which was probably 30 years ago, and he said, "I said, what's the hardest thing about being a golf course architect?" And he said staying small. It really is, is how do you focus your time and your energy on a few projects and make sure you do that. And as as we've gotten bigger and busier and, and been in more demand, I think that's something that Jim and I work doubly hard at now. Because I've said this before, if I, if I can't work in the bulldozer anymore, then we've lost the battle. And so we've made it important to, to ourselves to keep to retain that part of our business. And so it ultimately, it just comes down to scheduling. It's just sort of how do you stack everything up and you hope that every project sort of falls in the timeline that you're looking for. And if it doesn't, then you, you work it out on the fly. And you know, we've got a lot of really talented guys that work with us. So I think part of that is that Jim and I, we rarely see each other. It's kind of funny. Well, I'll be in a project and I'll leave and he'll come in and I'll go to the next one. But we're surrounded by these great guys who do all our shaping work. And you know, so we've built a really nice team. But it's the critical component is getting the schedule right. Well, you have projects all over the world. So there may be points where 
you might be in one country, he might be in, a, in another, and uh, I, would, I would guess that your experiences in Brazil, um, obviously a very, very challenging effort that we can talk a little bit about. We've had the pleasure of knowing Neil Cleverly um, sure. in, in the, in the run-up and, and got a, obviously a glimpse from his eyes into what was taking place down there, but uh, how much did your work there kind of prepare you for the expansion and a lot of the international uh, work you were doing in terms of supplies and finding shapers and things like that in other parts of the world? Well, I don't think anything can prepare you for Brazil, but um, <laughs> it was definitely a learning experience, and I think part of what made it great was you know, my wife Tracy and our youngest daughter, Kaylee, uh, came with me, and so we literally set up shop in Brazil for about seven months until we realized that the project was probably going to take a lot longer than we had originally anticipated for a lot of maddening, and I'm sure Neil cleverly went into right. them. Um, That's right. Very inefficient the way we went about doing our business down there, or we were asked to do our business. Uh, but so that made it a lot easier, you know, to be able to go, quote, home at home at night. But then as the project continued on, um, you know, we ultimately got to a point where things became more efficient. You know, it's, it's like anything. If you know what you're doing, if you're a superintendent, you know how to manage your turf. If you're an architect, you know how to build a golf course. And all you need is to let, you know, from an architect, let your client let you do the job. If you're a superintendent, let your club or your manager or your members let you do your job. And they were not letting us do our job. And that, that would made it doubly frustrating, especially since we knew we we had to get it done. We had, it wasn't right. like, oh, yeah, we can do this over four years. There was a due date. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, clock, the clock was running on that project. Um, when you, on your website, you talked about, um, and we've been talking about your, your desire to do the hands-on work. Um, how, many, how many tweaks do you do in the field when, uh, generally versus... Um, you know, you, say you, don't, you said on your website you don't necessarily have a full blueprint, you don't have a lot of plans, you'll have to do a lot of work. How much actual changes are you making on, on the fly um, when you get into a project, like something like, like the Olympic Club, uh, the Olympic Club in Brazil, not the one in San Francisco, which you also have a relationship <laughs> with, but um, versus how much, how much are you making on, on the fly versus... Uh, things that you have planned out in advance for what you think the property deserves. Yeah, I think what, the way Jim and I phrase it is we, we have enough plans to allow us to build a golf course, so whatever it takes to get through permitting or to get you know the client excited or get the membership ready. But then after that, it's really, then it's all about designing in the field. So everything is up for review and everything is up for hopefully improvement. I mean, I think that's one of the things we've always felt is that if we're on site, and we're extending the design window. So instead of the design window closing when the plans leave our office, it stays open through the entirety of the project. We'll learn things about the property. We'll learn things about how we handle the soils, how everything sort of works out. And then that'll allow us to refine and hopefully make the design better. So it's all up for grabs after that. I mean, obviously, if we have permitting issues, we can't fill in a wetland or do something that we're right. not supposed to do. And the routing generally stays the same. But green locations will shift, T locations will shift, and certainly we never prepare plans for what the green contours are gonna look like. To make the contractors and the owners not go absolutely crazy, we basically have a, a quantity. We say we're gonna build 130,000 square feet of greens, but we'll distribute that over the 18 holes. We're gonna build 200,000 square feet of bunkers. We'll distribute that. We won't exceed that, so that allows right. us to plan appropriately but they might move from hole to hole or, or you know, different side of each golf hole. Uh, and I, 
I want to talk a little bit about how you work with golf course superintendents uh, on the projects that you're involved with. And I know there's probably a great, uh, great variety, uh, especially if, if it depends versus a, if you're talking a new project versus a restoration versus a renovation. Uh, but, but in general, how do you approach uh, uh, a working relationship uh, with superintendents on the projects that you're tackling? We actually get along better with superintendents than probably other architects. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, you know, we're, we're dirt guys. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we, we love to get our, our boots dirty and get our hands dirty. And every great superintendent I've ever been around has that same affinity for the ground and for their, for their product, their turf, and for the soil. And so we're always happy to be out working side by side with superintendents. So we've, we've had some, some of my best friends in the business, so a lot of great relationships. But... We look at the superintendent as always being an equal partner in the process. So if there's a master plan that's being put together, the superintendent is always on the committee. Golf Pro is generally on the committee. General manager, if he's a golf guy, is on the committee. And then the group of members. But I'll never get to know the golf course as well as that superintendent will. And for me to just discard that source of knowledge would be egotistical and I think foolish. And so we always want the superintendents to put in to the plan what they're thinking about, what they need, because as you know, you know, the superintendent's there and he's much more knowledgeable about the golf course than I am, but I'm the guy who comes in from the outside, so I must be smarter. So <laughs> if I say, this is what you need, they might give it to you. So always tell the superintendent, hey, tell me what you need because chances are they might listen to us. And so that generally starts things off on a good foot. On new projects, uh, how much input do you have on when to bring in a superintendent uh, during construction? growing, things like that. We like to have them there from day one, if we can. I mean, part of it's just oversight. It's part of it, you know, we can't, if we're almost sitting on a bulldozer, I can't watch irrigation go in the ground. I can't watch drainage. So it's having another set of qualified eyes. It's having another set of eyes that has a vested interest in everything being done to the highest standard and the highest quality. And I think having that person on site, watching everything, feeling the, you know, the ground underneath their feet, seeing the transformation from rough site to finished product is only going to benefit the golf club in the long run and having that person there from day one. Uh, I want to uh, ask about master planning. On, on your website, your projects are divided into uh, to basically new builds, restorations, and renovations. And uh, I think it makes sense. Restorations, you're probably restoring existing courses. Renovations, you're or restorations are, how, well, let me, let's go to that yeah, question sure. first. How would you define a restoration versus a renovation? So I think restoration is when the original golf course architects, so Ross, a Tillinghaster, Rainer, McKenzie, that their design, their style, their philosophy is the principal emphasis in any of the architectural decisions that get made. So we're really just trying to restore their work, updating it to the modern game, the needs that we have in this day and age. Uh, renovation is really where some of the original architects' ideas are involved, some of our ideas are involved, and a lot of that depends on what the clubs need. There may be just a, an inherent problem in the routing or something that doesn't work anymore, or you know, a highway comes through and they lose a golf hole. So those are the changes that you can't really rely on the original designer. Right. So you're making those sort of, you're inserting your thoughts and ideas into the process versus totally taking on board the, the design thoughts of the original architect. Okay. 
Uh, you've you've picked up. Uh, I know you you do a lot of master planning work. There's been some notable uh, courses where you have uh, just recently uh, been announced uh, that you'll be involved in some helping them with uh, establishing long-term master plans. Uh, what role do superintendents on those courses play when you do that? Uh, do you sit down with them in advance to kind of take take a temperature where they are, where they where they think they need to be? Um, are you bringing them ideas to start with? Just what, how does that relationship in terms of the long-term uh, setup play out? So most of the times it's the superintendents who are recommending us to the clubs and, and to be brought on site. So again, that gets back to the relationships or reputation uh, that we've established with golf course superintendents. So more often than not, they're at the forefront. And then all I'm trying to do is soak up as much knowledge from them as I possibly can. Because when we get walk onto a site, pretty cold. I mean, we don't we've either never been there or have been there maybe just playing golf, but never really looking at it through through the lens we look at it. So as I mentioned before, it's, it's really critical to us to get the insight for the superintendent. Like every day I show up there, if I'm lucky, it might be sunny and beautiful. I never see it rain. I never see, you know, where the drainage issues are. Uh, you know, it could to have all of that input brought into it. And as I said earlier, really get their, their thoughts on what they need in order to succeed, whether that's through tree removal, drainage, equipment, new maintenance facility, extra manpower, all of those things, we have discussions about that as we go forward with the master plan. I know there are, there are a lot of superintendents who have begun to, and I think social media has helped with this, really express their, their interest, their passion for golf course design, great golf course architecture. I'm sure you've interacted with, with, with some of them on there. Uh, in general, though, how, how crucial do you think, as an as a architect, how crucial is it for superintendents to have maybe a passing knowledge or an understanding of, of the principles uh, of golf course architecture? Um, and, and do you see a benefit when they, when they have that same passion and interest that you do? I, I do. I think it's great when golf course superintendents take an active interest in architecture, whether it's the historical aspect of a great old architect or on our courses. It's critical to have a conversation and understanding of how we'd like to see the golf course play. I mean, the, the sort of the, the secret that most golf architects don't want to let out is that without the superintendents, our work is irrelevant because ultimately we are setting up, we, we build a golf course, but it needs to be maintained in a fashion that will promote the way we'd like to see it play. If we're promoting a ground game and the, the recovery options around a green complex are paramount to the success of the design and it's not being maintained to match that, then we haven't accomplished anything. So a right. lot of those conversations that we talked about you know, on newer golf courses, they're involved in making sure we're not pounding the, sand, you know, the soil into oblivion so that they can't grow grass on it, making sure that we're providing opportunities for them to succeed through construction with the turf grass. And then the golf course superintendents who are in charge of managing and maintaining these great old classic courses, I think it's paramount that they understand and appreciate what they're, they're looking at. Because I think over periods of time and through no, no bad intentions, a lot of these great old golf courses change. And generally through recommendations from well-intentioned green committees and right. members, et cetera. Right. I think if the golf course superintendents understand the Tillinghast thought or the Ross thought, they can go in armed against some of these really silly ideas that the green committees and members bring up and say, well, actually Tillinghast wrote this and that counteracts. 
if they can have that sort of knowledge and understanding as they go into the discussions with members about decisions that are being made that not only impact the architecture, but also impact the maintenance, I think that can only help them. I, I should, I'm kind of burying the lead here. I should have. How did you get a, your your interest in 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 golf course design? I hear it's always fun for me to, to talk with with superintendents and GCSA members about how they got interested and and there's so many similarities. But from your from your perch, how did you get interested in in this business in the game of golf? Well, I've always loved to play in the dirt, so that was the first <laughs> the first start. And then my my grandfather, I idolized him. He was. You know, the moon, he hung the moon, and everything about him was just fantastic. And he was, a golf, he was the only golfer in our family. And so he took me out to play golf, and I think there was just something magical about the golf landscape and, and something special about it. But then I went to college, studied political science and history, which have actually served me well in the club politics world is pretty <laughs> nasty. And club histories I, I certainly enjoy. And doodled golf holes, but never really thought there was a, a path to become a golf course architect. And I was in my first semester at, at Cornell in grad school and I met a guy named Tom Griswold who worked for Tom Fazio for a long, long time. And he was applying his master's degree to be a golf course architect. And I went home to Tracy and I said, you, you can actually do this. <laughs> and so I switched to landscape architecture right then and there and uh, had a great experience at Cornell. They were terrific in allowing us to to continue to sort of any independent study I could apply to golf course design. Tom Doak preceded me at Cornell. He was starting his own firm right as I was graduating, so I became his first employee, and things things just worked out from there. Well, uh, one thing you probably didn't study in landscape architecture, we talked on, we talked touched on it earlier, and that's the Olympic Golf Course in Rio de Janeiro, yeah. uh, of Brazil. Um, we probably could sit here all day, and you could tell me story after story of things that you encountered there that you didn't ever encounter before and will never encounter again. But uh, I guess I'll phrase the question, what did you learn from that whole experience that maybe changed the way you've approached subsequent projects that you've tackled? Well, I think the thing that Jim and I took away from that and a couple of other projects at that time frame was never to accept working with a client whose first and foremost goal wasn't good golf. And when the eight of us interviewed for the Olympic course job, it was never once portrayed that we'd be working for the landowner there. We thought we'd be working for Rio 2016 and the PGA Tour would be involved. And what ultimately came to pass was we were working for a landowner who didn't even understand what golf was, could right. care less, was trying to save money, gave us on-road trucks for a sandy side. I spent more time on a bulldozer pulling trucks out of the sand <laughs> as opposed to shaping. And so it, it really set the tone for us to understand that you know, we, we have to be really cautious as to who and how we work, where we work, but to make sure that the, the first goal of, of every client is to, to build the best possible golf course you can build on that, on that site. And so you know, people asked if there was a lot of pressure. Sure, there was you know, as far as the getting the timeline done. But I mean, any of the golf course architects here, that's what we do. It would be just like a superintendent. Yeah, you, I'm sure Steve Rabideau is feeling pressure going into the U.S. Open, but I can guarantee you that he's completely confident this is what we do. And as long as Mother Nature doesn't throw a huge curveball at you, the expectation is for excellence. So it's, and I'm trying to sound arrogant or cocky, it's just that you know, if you're comfortable doing what you do and you don't put yourself into a situation where you're out of that comfort zone, and I think there was a little bit in the Olympic course where we maybe got out of our comfort zone and we learned pretty fast that we need to reel that back in. 
Yeah, I, I, I've always just imagined that it was obviously it's there, there aren't many markets in the world where golf simply isn't a, a isn't a, a an option for for residents. Brazil was really was really one of them. I think it's a uh, when the Olympics head to Tokyo uh, this year. It, it's such a golf crazed country. Obviously, limited golf courses because of space, but just a completely a 180 from what what was experienced in in Brazil. I would imagine. Yeah, uh, they couldn't have picked a worse place for golf to come back <laughs> as it relates to you know sort of inventory of golf courses. You know, any others? Obviously, Tokyo and Paris. There's plenty of great golf courses. Los Angeles. I think Rio was probably the only big city in the world where you might not find uh, find a golf course. But on the other hand, we were really happy they did pick it because it gave us the great opportunity to build a golf course there. How much do you follow what's what's taking place with that property now? Is uh, are you are you have you visited since the Olympics? Uh, and I how's have, it doing? I have not been back, and not for any particular reason. But we have two friends down there, really good, great golfers. They play at Gavia on Saturday, which is a private club, and they play the Olympic course Sunday. And anytime there's any sort of issue or change, they text me right away. I check in with them at least at quarterly, and the golf course is fine. Much, you know, I get that asked that question all the time. It's like, oh, it's a shame it's closed, or they let it grow over. Right. And I said, no, actually, they didn't. It's it's fine. It's operating. I wouldn't say it's thriving. It's just because that culture doesn't really. But they do enough rounds to keep it open and keep it going. And I think that, you know, the, what Neil cleverly did in setting the baseline with respects to how it can be maintained and how it should be maintained, uh, like we've talked about protecting the soils, I think they, with limited resources, I think they do a great job in taking care of it. Well, I, I, uh, I'll wrap up here, and I don't want to. I don't want to steal too much thunder from your your uh, your presentation later. Uh, yeah, it's really that we're going to be doing. But I did. But I did want to ask you about. Uh, this is your sneak preview. This is that chance to try out your material okay. uh, before that. But um, uh, I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, about Winged Foot, and um, uh, in particular, it's a venue that golf fans will will know well from the Major Championship rotation, uh, hosted in 06, and. Um, if there's one thing that people watching at home, maybe they're lucky enough to actually attend the tournament uh, in June, um, that they might look for in terms of changes now versus 2006, what would you recommend they kind of look for? Well, I think the, the major change is the expansion of the green complexes. So we all remember Jeff Ogilvie chip, chipping in on the 17th hole. His ball would be on the green now. Oh, wow. So he wouldn't be chipping in from the rough. His ball would have kind of taken that slope and run back in. Through exhaustive study of, of and, and Wingfoot has great archives and tons of material, we were able through Neil Regan, the club historian, to piece together where the greens originally went to. And I think that's part of the lessons we've learned there is that architects of that era moved dirt for efficiency and economy. They just didn't do it because they wanted to. So you can always sort of find in the ground markers of where the green complexes right. were. And then when you've got a club like Wingfoot or subsequently you know, Merriam, where they've got great photographs, we were able to put all that back together and try and restore the greens, not only to the original scale, but also to the original contours. So I think the, the putting greens themselves, which are masterful and generally tell the story. I mean, the rough, the combination of the rough and those greens tells the story at Wingfoot during major championships. Right, right. Uh, I don't think the rough will be much different from when it was in 2006. <laughs> It'll still be pretty nasty, but the greens are will be significantly different. Well, that's great. Uh, 
for more information, especially for folks who are, are here on site in Orlando, uh, Gil will be part of a, a presentation on the GCSA TV live stage, uh, or directly to our left here, at 2.30 p.m. today. It's called It Takes a Team Collaboration Insight into Preparing and uh, Completing the Renovation at Wingfoot Golf Club. Gil, Red Evans will moderate, uh, Steve Rabideau, the superintendent there. Shalene Elmore, and the contractor. Shalene Elmore, the, uh, the builder, will also be there. So uh, I'd encourage everyone to check that out. Gil, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking some time. I know it's a busy, uh, busy time there. You stand out with your red jacket, yeah, and people are I stopping know. in the aisles. <laughs> but uh, uh, really, really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for coming uh, for this live recording of the GCSA podcast. And uh, enjoy the rest of your time in, uh, in Orlando. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the GCSAA podcast live from the 2020 Golf Industry Show in Orlando, Florida, presented in partnership with Bayer Environmental Science. Look for more podcasts coming to you live from GIS 2020 on the GCSAA podcast feed, wherever it is you get your podcasts.